Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here, we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listening. Regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at nbkumc.com. Good morning. Hope everybody is doing well this morning. Hope everyone is staying sane. Uh, it's a long, it's been a long quarantine. Uh, I don't know why it's been so long. Obviously, no one can fully, and if you ask me for the theological implications of all of it, to be honest with you, I don't, I can't, I can't, I'm not at a, I'm not at a place right now where I have all that worked out even in my own brain. But I hope that you guys are having a good Sunday today. It's snowing, it's beautiful, aside from the fact that people will have to shovel. Um, but it's really good to see everyone and it's good to see faces. I hope you guys in your hearts are ready and attentive. I hope they are in the right place. I'm just going to give the same old, the same old, um, Disclaimer that I give every week, I am not intending to come for anybody's life, nor am I preaching out of something that I want to say. I am not trying to call anybody out because to be real, like, what do I know about your lives that I have the right, or even if I did know about your lives, right? What what right do I have to call you out in, in, in a sermon, um, in a time when we're talking about God's holy and perfect word and what he has for his congregation? That's not That's not my place. No pastor, it's no pastor's place to call a congregation members or anything like that out and use, you know, sermons as a tool for that. I'm just, through what I truly believe is the conviction that God has given me preaching. And so I'm going to be talking about more sensitive things. It's not actually sensitive, but it, it, it can sound a little sensitive. So uh, please bear with me. We are continuing through the book of Romans. And, you know, one thing I've learned about the book of Romans is that it does not stop. Today's sermon is called Spirit of God, Body of Flesh. Spirit of God, Body of Flesh. The passage, the, the main idea of today's sermon is our body is fallen, but we have a hope in a God that has redeemed and rescued us. I'm going to say that one more time. Our body is fallen, but we have hope in a God that has redeemed and rescued us. So I just am giving this particular disclaimer one more time. It's not me. I'm not calling you out. I do not have the right. That's not the role of a pastor. I'm just preaching out of what I truly believe God's word is saying here. And I, I hope that everybody has something to take away this morning. If we were in person, I'd crack a joke. I'd do something to clear the air, but there's no way right now. And so we're just going to keep moving. If you guys can open up your Bibles with me to Romans, I almost said John, Romans chapter 7. I'm just going to read through the whole chapter. Actually, 
I'm going to read through the beginning and the end of the chapter. So I'm going to jump a little bit, but it's all in Romans 7. Romans 7. Romans is after the book of... Ah. <laughs> Grace is like... <laughs> sorry. I, I... <laughs> uh, sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Romans is after the book of Acts and before the book of 1 Corinthians. It's early on in the New Testament. It's one of the bigger books. Romans chapter 7. All right. Romans chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Wait, I have to... I'm going to read that one more time because I realize ESV is making theological implications that are not true. I'm going to read that one more time. Sorry. Or do you not know, brothers and sisters? It's a Delphoi, so it's it's both genders. Brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my, my brothers and sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now, now that we are, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We're skipping ahead. Romans 13. Romans chapter 7, verse 13, sorry. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So it, now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but it is the evil I do not want that I keep on doing. For if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law 
waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? We're so grateful for you this morning and we're so grateful that you um, like to bring out a lot of things within us that keep us from enjoying you. We thank you, God, that you do not like to leave us in the ways that we are stuck in our flesh, but Lord, that you encourage us to keep fighting the good fight and that and you give us reason to do so and, and you give us the tools to do so. God, I just pray that for every single person who's listening right now, that your spirit would come upon every single heart right now. That every person would be able to experience you again. That every person would be encouraged to continue to run the good race. Abba, I am nothing without you. All of this is nothing without you. So God, please be with us. Hide me behind your cross that only you are magnified and glorified. We love you so much. We give you glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Um, so this is the first part of, not the first part, it's really a continuation. It continues and it continues. Next week is, next week is also going to be thick. So let's hang on, you know, let's hang on. We're hanging on. Okay. So I'm just going to jump right into what the passage is saying, because why not? So the passage starts off with, the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. Paul does an interesting thing. And the reason why I, I read the chapter this way is because Paul is very interesting. He talks about the effects of sin and the ways that we wrestle with sin after talking about how we are released from it. And so I just want to take, I want to be faithful. I want to acknowledge the logical progression of what Paul is doing. I want to honor it. And I'm going to start with the beginning of the passage, okay? So it's going to sound a little bit more redemption-y in the beginning and a little bit more struggling and challenging in the end. But a lot of the times, you know, you'll hear it. Pastors will be like, blah, 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 but Jesus, right? And yes, that's true. But sometimes especially when it comes to the finitude of ourselves, the limitedness of ourselves and, and the capacity that we have and the how easily we fall into 
sin, it is, it might be more loving of God to address our redemption before pointing out where we are still caught in, in the law of our members. And so that, I just want to make note of that before we go into anything because that is grace. Nobody has the right to break that law of grace that we are now under. And so we're just gonna we're gonna we're gonna go through it. We're released from the law and bound to Christ. That's the um, the subtitle of this first part. It says the law has authority over someone as long only as long as that person lives. Interesting. Paul gives a very logical explanation as to why we are free from the law, right? And this is actually based on Jewish rule. Don't forget, Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees, so he's very well trained. And there is something in Jewish law that says if, pers- if a person is dead, he is free from the Torah and the fulfilling of the commandments. If a person is dead, he is free from the Torah and the fulfilling of the commandments. And so when somebody, obviously, when you die, Whatever you did here, you don't take with you no more. When you die, you are also free from having to fulfill the commandment because you're already in another, you're already in another chapter of eternity at that point. You know what I'm saying? So the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. Right? And Paul addresses this first and foremost to explain how, because we had just talked about last week, we talked about baptismo, we talked about how we died with Christ and we live with Christ, and how important and significant that is, that as Christ died, we die with him, and as he lived through the resurrection, we live with him. We just talked about that. So given the fact that we die with Christ and we live with Christ, Paul mentions the, the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. Well... As Christians, if we have been truly, if we truly accept that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, and we have carried that out in, in practice, right? And we are we are Christian, not carried that out in practice in terms of works, um, but we have begun to walk out faith and come and be be. Be committed to our faith. Um, then believers have suffered a death in relationship to the law because believers has, have died with Christ and have been raised with Christ. Because we have died, Christ died to the law of sin. So because we have died, then we are also, uh, because he has died, then we have also died with him. And when we have died, to the old covenant and the old promise of law and sin, then we have also died to the law. So believers have suffered a death in relationship to the law, a death that frees them from the law and enables them to enter into a new relationship. A death that frees them 
from the law and enables them to enter into a new relationship. This is really interesting. We don't like to think about this, but that low-key, high-key means Old Testament law doesn't apply to us. To some of you, you guys might be like, oh. <laughs> um, the Old Testament is a part of God's redemption story. But the law of Moses, Leviticus, y'all do that? I do not purify myself after menstruating. Okay? We do not stone people who have committed adultery. Okay? So, I want to also do a little bit of a caveat. For those of us who might obey moral... Obey... For those of us who might assume OT law, at least the moral ones, and cherry pick which laws we want to follow. Number one, you don't have to do that. Number two, why you, you don't cherry pick. If you're going to follow one thing, you might as well also purify yourself. Make sure your mom purifies herself. You know, make sure your sisters and Make sure if you're a girl, then make sure you yourself are purifying yourself after you menstruate. Like, you gotta, you know, eat kosher. Like, you know what I mean? You can't just cherry pick which law you want to follow in the Old Testament. But, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Because, Old Testament law, we have died. This is, I'm just, I'm just preaching, okay? We have died to that covenant and we live with christ in a new life a new commitment and a new relationship with god new life one that does not end at the end of the life that we live on here with confusion into eternity because we we've had to continue to you know offer sacrifices up in the in the form of animals but also, we have a new, there's a new nature of the promise, of the commitment that we're making. It's not based on worth. It's on faith alone, by grace. By grace, through faith, right? And then a new relationship with God. One that is not far. Only the priests were able to enter into the most holy place where God's presence dwelled. But now we, Christ has torn the veil from top to bottom. And so in him, we are able to fully enjoy intimacy with God, a relationship with God, a very different nature of relationship with God. Before I might answer all your what uh, questions, I want to give you guys the two examples, and I want to contextualize the two examples that Paul gives. The first example he gives is marriage. Married woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. If she commits, or actually that's one example because I gave the other one. The second example, the, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as she lives. If she has sexual relations with another person while the man is alive, she's an adulteress. 
But if she does it afterwards, she's not committing adultery. Because marriage, as a bond, ends in death. So before, we might have been married to a different way of life. But when you accept, when you believe and confess that Jesus is Lord, when you allow yourself to be covered, right, baptismal, when you allow the gospel and the covenant with Christ, your faith, you allow yourself to be be consumed in you die with Christ and you are raised with him you die with him in death and you are raised with him in resurrection which means you have died to the previous marriages that you may have had to sin to death to the enemy to the old way that you would interact with God you've died to that and you've come alive in a new life. It's not even adultery. It's not even like you deserted that man. Like a lot of people, we think that we, to put it into perspective, a lot of people, when, when we think we get saved, we think that we let go of our relationship to the world and we hold on to our relationship with God. God is saying that it is more extreme than that. You have died. You've not desert. you've died to this relationship. And now you live in a different life, a different reality. It's not adultery. It's not desertion. It's death and life. It's the same thing as how we think that sin makes us sick. But it's not a matter of sickness. You are dead in your transgressions. It's more extreme. Salvation is more extreme than what we are comfortable with thinking about. All right, now I will address, what about the Ten Commandments, Jane? Do not murder, do not steal, honor your father. I don't have to do that no more, right? Like, you know, honor the Sabbath, you know? Don't have any idols, I don't have to do that anymore. I can just live the way the Israelites lived, and that's that's chill. No. Unfortunately, no. And the reason for that is not because I'm cherry-picking, it's because Christ has mentioned the Ten Commandments in the New Testament. You can't... Christ has redeemed a lot of the law of the Old Testament. So Christ has claimed a lot of laws and a lot of values in the Old Testament in his teachings of the law. And so Matthew 23, right? The Ten Commandments can be summed up in this. Love your neighbor. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So he sums up the Ten Commandments in that way and he brings it into the New Covenant. Why? Why does Christ do that? The difference between the Old Testament Ten Commandments and Christ's greatest commandment is that one is about action and the other one is about the heart. Even when it comes to loving the Lord your God, it's I am your God. The God of your ancestors. Number two, you cannot put any idols. I'm a jealous God. It's all about action, right? God is whipping the Israelites to live in a, lot, a life that is set apart. 
But what Christ does is he reaches past that into our heart. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. He has claimed in this way a lot of Old Testament law. And he has rewritten the implications of the law and the reason. In the Old Testament, the purpose for obeying the law was to be set apart. In the New Testament, the purpose of obeying the law is to live out your relationship with God. To live out the righteousness that you have already been given. To dare to have the courage to walk in faith. Knowing that even when you're not fully there, God has done it all for you and that gives you the strength to do that. That's what we were talking about last week. right? And so the purpose and the nature, a lot of Old Testament laws have been redeemed. One thing that the Old Testament narrative is that can be, like if you sum up the Old Testament narrative in one sentence, it would be that Israel had a hardened heart. That God claimed them, that God claimed exclusivity with them. I am the Lord, your God. I have called you by name. You are mine, my people. Hosea says, to those who are not my people, I will say you are my people. Again, God claims you, but Israel's heart is hardened. All of the conquest narratives, the poetry narrative, everything, everything can be shown, actually, if you wanted to look at it in your own time, Exodus 25, 34, a lot of that language, that is all, that is the foundation of the Old Testament. Not to do another caveat, but uh, I get this question a lot, so I'm just going to address it. Well, Jane, what do you do about this? You know, what do you do about parts of the Old Testament that, like in the book of Judges or in in the book of Leviticus or in the book of Deuteronomy where God talks about, you know, something that could easily be holy war, something that can be seen like genocide, men mishandling women, raping them, killing them. What do you do with that? Is God condoning these things in the Old Testament? It's very contrary to that. The Old Testament is written to the, the intent of the author, often in books like the book of Judges is that the author is displaying the sinful nature of man and the holy heart of God that continues to seek after mankind. So it's not that these things are prescriptive. It's not that these things are things to follow. But you have to understand the purpose of the of certain texts in the Bible. Right? So I, I just wanted to address all of that, right? Do we obey the crazy things of the Old Testament? Well, look at the intention. Is it written to be a narrative? Is it written to explain events? Then I, it's probably not the intent that you think it's supposed to be. Wisdom literature, on the other hand, Song of Solomon, uh, Proverbs, those are prescriptive. They're wisdom literature. But even, you know, poetry, Songs, they're not prescriptive, they're descriptive. Descriptive of the heart of man. Descriptive of man's propensity to idolatry and sin. How easy it is for man to obey their flesh, to fulfill our own what we want rather than to do what God wants for us. And it's just a display of that. So 
Yeah. So yes, Old Testament law, we don't obey it anymore. You can eat pork. I love pork. I love beef. I can't. Dare I say, it would be really hard to live. It would be really, really, really. I think my. I think the people in this house that we, we that live with me have realized the magnitude of that after we've lived together. I don't think I would fully be able to live without beef and pork. Um, if that offends somebody, I'm sorry. Uh, it's you're free to eat it, by the way, because you know OT law doesn't apply to us. Hallelujah. Um, Yes, so through Christ's death, we are released from the law and bound to Christ. And so Christ just knocks it out of the park through Paul from the beginning. He says the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. But we have died. We live in Christ. But, like, you might be thinking, you know, that's great. That's great. Thank you for saving me. But I... My life doesn't reflect that victory. I still can't help but lust after others. I can't help but want to do the things that I used to do before before I, I became saved. What about my flesh? What do I do with these stubborn sins that I keep falling back into? I pray and I repent and I say, God, I'm not going to do it anymore. But then I do it again. I say, I'm going to love my neighbor. But I get angry. And I, and I, get, I get spiteful and bitter. I, it's hard for me to love. So then... Like, yeah, the Bible says all of this stuff. We are released from the law and sin, and that's great. But my life doesn't reflect that right now. If that's you, then today's passage is also for you. And so now that this redemption is locked into place, we're going to go into this very dilemma that we are in right now. So the first thing I want to point out through the rest of Romans 7, which I highly encourage that you read on your own. Romans 7, for me, is personally one of the most encouraging passages that I can read in Scripture. Because even Apostle Paul is no different than you or I. And that gives me hope. When I, when I mess up, because I mess up, Anybody messes up. The person you idolize in your life, they mess up. But our our lives are not based off of that anymore. And Paul goes into that a little bit more. So towards the rest, he mentions a lot of sinful nature, sinful. Um, there's a word, not every word in, of, of this sinful nature is this word, because there is hamartia, which is sin, to miss the mark. It's an archery term. But when it comes to the sinful nature, there's another word that is also used, and that word is sarhe. Okay? Now, that word, it does mean flesh sin, but that word is used in, in the book of, in the book of, not, not just in the book of John, in John's writings as it's the same sense as the word world. 
this, the, the word world. So to be in the flesh then is to live in a world bound by this life and its concerns, to make decisions and behave without any regard for God or for the spiritual realm. I'm going to say that one more time. To be in the flesh then is to live in a world bound by this life and its concerns, to make decisions and behave without any regard for God and for the spiritual world realm. So in this word, a lot of times you guys might be like, what is my sinful nature? That's a pretty vague statement that is Christianese. Well, the word itself in the original languages is very, very visual. So live in a world bound by this life and the concerns of this life and to make decisions and behave without any regard for God. That's easily us. Sin is not just murder. It's not just adultery. It's not just stealing. It's not just doing all the worst things. But if you, if you are able, if you are able to make decisions and be, and act for a whole day without any regard for God, if you are currently living and the primary things that govern your life are the concerns that you have for this life, that speaks to our worldliness. And it speaks to our sinful nature. Is Jane Doe saying to abandon all of that? No, not necessarily. But I think it's important to identify that that is... That comes out of a willingness to look away from God and to look inward towards our life, towards what we see, towards what our future, towards what we can control. That, that is the heart of our flesh. Paul then addresses, is the law sin? Since if there was no law, I would not say, is the law sin? No. And Paul addresses something that's really important. He says, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. And, and, and he explains in verse 11, he says, sin sees the opportunity to do what is bad. Sin sees the opportunity. Once sin was identified in the law, sin sees the opportunity to do what is bad. But you won't necessarily know to do it if you don't know that it's bad. Right? And so it's not the law that makes us bad. Because a lot of people think too, like, we are good people if the Bible didn't exist, if these obligations didn't exist, then we would not be sinful because we're still good people, right? But the law is not sin. When the law has identified things as sin, our nature in us seizes the opportunity. And the law only does the act of identifying what is in us already. 
So I'm gonna explain this a little bit. When you, I don't know about, I don't know about y'all, but growing up, I always, I was a bad kid, and um, many of you guys are not bad kids or adults, but I was, I was bad. I was a pretty bad human. Um, and when I learned that something was bad, I wanted to do it more. I don't know if y'all know, you know, like if your mama tells you come outside, it makes you want to stay in bed longer. Like five minutes ago, you were about to get, go outside and get a glass of water. But then your parent says, come out. And you say no. And you chama being thirsty. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? It's like when you, when, when you know that something is bad, you want to do it more. Jeweling, would it be popular if it wasn't considered to be bad? <laughs> I'm sorry, see filters, censoring, haha. <laughs> uh, jeweling, if, if you didn't know a certain, if there were no societal perceptions of these things to be bad and therefore cool, you wouldn't would it be popular? Would would it be popular? Would sticking would it would it be popular? This metal this metal stick? Honestly, I don't know. Right? If there weren't so many videos of people vaping, would vaping be popular? I don't know. If, you know, celebrities didn't engage in all of those things, would it still be as popular? Would it be would it be normalized? I don't think so. When you know and you perceive something to be a particular way, oftentimes the in the the intent that we have to do it grows. Um, also, there are things within us that we do without realizing. For example, a four-year-old. The reason why I don't like four-year-olds. Uh, wait, 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 let me not start off with that. Wait, wait, pause, pause, pause. Let me think about this. Okay, so I love kids. <laughs> I do. I actually really, I really love. I adore kids. But the reason why I don't like, like objectively, like my heart is like, mm -hmm, so cute. But my mind is like, oh my god, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> keep that thing away from me. Because kids have these this beautiful angelic face, and then they do the worst things. Do you know what I'm saying? You can tell sinful nature in mankind through. The, the, the fours, the terrible twos, the four-year-olds, when they start screaming, they know exactly what to do to get their way. They know that if they wail, even if just for the volume, you'll give it to them. That's how you know. Sometimes there are things within us that are self-serving without us realizing some of the selfish people you'll ever meet are kids. But kids don't know any better. So then where do they develop that? If kids don't know any better, if nothing has taught them anything like that, where are they getting that from? It's already within them, right? 
And so oftentimes, because of the nature that is already within us, when something is highlighted to be sinful, when something is highlighted to be forbidden, we often want it more. There are so many dramas, movies that have popularized loving somebody that is forbidden. But usually that person is either forbidden because they are because the person is an adult and they are a minor, or if that person is married to another person and that makes them more attractive for what uh, whatever reason, right? And it's popularized. It's romanticized. Maybe that person wouldn't be as attractive if they weren't forbidden from me. Maybe that action wouldn't be as appetizing if it wasn't forbidden from me. Drinking. When you're underage and you drink, it is thrilling. Don't, don't do it. But often it is like, it's like, oh my God, I broke the law, right? But then once you turn 21, it's just whatever. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's just not like a... I remember, I remember the day I turned 21, I was like, I'm going to go find my first six pack of beer. And I bought it and I was like, okay. And then it literally, like literally my interest went, like, because sometimes it's the fact that it's forbidden that makes it appetizing, right? And that speaks not to the law, but to our nature. But when we know that something is wrong and we do it, it also assigns greater responsibility onto us. For example, when you steal without realizing, you I've done this before. You know what I'm talking about? When you take something and you're looking at it and you're not even realizing that you're holding it, you walk out with it. There was this one time I freaked out, so I went back inside, I confessed, and I paid for it. Um, but that, actually, when I was younger, I didn't do that. When I was younger and I just, I was like, okay, thank you. Um, but when I got older, it started to freak me out um, because the law is real. Um, <laughs> I'm not a juvie anymore. Um, but stealing without realizing versus intentionally stealing, it, even in our criminal justice system today, degrees of murder are delineated by intention. Manslaughter is a degree is a murder of passion. First degree murder is premeditated, planned murder. Second degree murder is murder that you intentionally did, but you didn't know you were going to do it until you did. And then first degree is when you premeditate it completely. The intention, when you do something intentionally versus not knowing what it is, the gravity of the sin, the gravity of the wrong deepens. And so... I know this is a lot of jargon. This is a lot of like rambling about words, but you guys need to understand the degrees of sin, the what, the ways that we have sin and the nature of where that sin in us comes from, right? The sinful nature is to live in a world bound by the concerns of this life and to make decisions and behave without any regard for God or for the spiritual realm. That at its core, you're Genuine desire to avoid God in your actions, in your calling, in your vocational context. That is a worldly nature. And it's something that we're born with. Kids do it. 
It's what makes. And then on top of that, when the law points things out as sin, you're like, ah, I shouldn't do that. But like, you know? And Paul unearths the sinful nature generally before identifying it in himself. He starts off saying, or he first says, the law has been the occasion that enables us to see sin for what it really is. The law has been the occasion that enables us to see sin for what it really is. And he starts off with the words, I am unspiritual. I am unspiritual. He says, I do not understand. This is verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it. But it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this is what I keep on doing. For now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what this is exactly about. Is this about Paul pre-Christ as a Jew? Is this about Paul's experience as a mature Christian? It's really divided. A really prominent, really prominent theologians stand on both sides. So I'm not going to um, really talk much about that. But in my in my personal experience, I wouldn't be surprised if this was about Paul in the present, like as he was as he was doing ministry, him expressing him the sinful nature within himself so that others can also relate and understand and identify it in themselves as well. Paul here, and this is something, this is something we have to make clear. Why does Paul write this in the Bible? Why is this passage in the Bible? Is it to justify it? Is Paul saying, now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who does it, but it's sin. Living in me that does it. Is that Paul being like, ah, when I sin, it's sin in me. Is he justifying this nature? No. Paul is not doing a disclaimer here. But he is explaining what is at work within him that leads him to act as he does? He, it's an explanation. It is not a disclaimer. You cannot use this passage to say it's okay. Not in that way. Not in the way, like, yes, it is, like, how do I say this? It is okay in the sense that God still got you. And your salvation is not dependent on what you do. But it is not okay to cheapen grace by justifying your sin with scripture. If sin can be justified like that, 
And you can continue to live a life of sin. Like, yes, we struggle with it, right? But you do not weaponize the Bible to fit what you want to do in that present moment. Yes, the gospel of grace is a gift. Yes, you have already been redeemed. When you have accepted Jesus without any fault of your own, without any action of your own, just by grace, through faith, if you believe, truly believe that Jesus is Lord, you have died to the law and the law of sin, and you have risen with Christ into this new reality. It's true. No matter how much from this point forward, Christ has already died for that sin. Christ has already died for every single sin that you will ever commit. And there is no if, ands, or buts to that whatsoever. However, do not weaponize the Bible to do what you want to do. Don't misuse the gospel to carry out your desires. Don't take somebody else's word, especially God's word, out of context to do what you want to do. God says to your brokenness, to your imperfections, he says it's okay. But it is different when you struggle with it and when you intentionally weaponize the Bible to justify your complacency. Because God does not care about the actions. He cares about your heart. And that's something I need to hear. Because one thing about Christians, the longer you're in the church, the more sophisticated you are of a sinner. You know all the right passages. To make yourself feel better. But do not. We have to understand the weight of the glory of God. And the revelation of what is God's words. Do not use it. For what you want. That's not what you do in a relationship. When you manipulate words based on the occasion for what you want, you know what that's called relationally? It's when you manipulate somebody. Don't manipulate God's word. Take it for what it is. I say that lovingly and I say that to myself because it is so easy. Sometimes our guilt overwhelms us and we're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. We need to look at God's love and yes, There is a reason for why God explains redemption from sin before he goes into what exactly he redeemed you from. That's because godly guilt is different from self-condemnation. And God, while you might feel remorse that leads you to repentance in light of God's cry, like your remorse plus God's kindness and grace, that is what leads us to repentance, right? But if you condemn yourself, if you vilify yourself, if you get discouraged and you let your insecurity swallow you up and you let the law attach to that, that is, that is not the will of God. It is a scary thing to use God's words for something that is not the will of God. If you are willing to take in God's grace, if 
you are willing to take in God's definition of sin, you must also be willing to confront the fact that you are a child of God, not through any actions of your own. And that nothing is going to change that. Even if we can't help but be a particular way, even if we can't help but do things, when we can't help but be in things, when we feel stuck, God is with us. It sucks to do something when you keep failing. You give up. I'll never get there. Right? That's what you might be thinking. But in Christ, we are already there. When we can't help but be a particular way, when we can't help but do things, when we can't help but be in sin, when we feel stuck about where we are, when we try, we try, and we try, and we keep failing, and we feel like giving up, and we think to ourselves, I'll never get there. Remember that in Christ, you are already there. That is what qualifies you to continue. If you wanted to succeed based on your action, that would not be the gospel. What qualifies you to try is not the possibility of becoming a holy. What qualifies you to try is that you are already a child. What qualifies me to be in my parents' house is not the ability for me to pay the rent. It is because I am a child that I am there. God is not asking you to pull your own weight or anything like that. God is with you. And at the same time, don't weaponize what he's saying to you. Some of you guys might question why this might be in the Bible. Like, it's Apostle Paul. He struggles with this? I mean, yeah, it's really human of him, but like, really? Right? Well, here is your daily gentle reminder that as Christians, we are not Jesus. For whoever that needed to hear it, I am not the perfect this. I am not the perfect that. I am not the perfect son or daughter. I am not the perfect spouse or significant other. I am not the perfect brother or sister. I am not the perfect friend. Well, Here's news for you. You're not Jesus. What does it mean that you are striving for perfection? You trying to be God? Your reason for trying is not because it, it should not be to succeed. It should be because Christ has succeeded. And because that success, that victory, falls directly on you. And now you are free. Free. To do what you normally would not have been able to do before. 
I am free to drive my car and have a car, something I normally wouldn't be able to do because I don't got the moolah, because I am my parents' child and because they love me. What I would not be able to do on my own, the blessings I have having a roof over my head, for many of us, we can do it. We can have a home, not because we earned it, not because it's something that we deserve, but simply because God is good. And God has done that for us. So how do we apply this into our lives? The first thing is that God is the one to save us from ourselves. Morality is not the way to go. Don't just randomly apply Old Testament law into yourself after reading it from the Old Testament, all right? We, we as Christians, especially the ones that are really enthusiastic, we might go down a rabbit hole. I have seen this happen in Reformed. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't call it out like that. I have seen this happen in certain groups of Christianity. <laughs> over and over and over again. I've seen it happen one way in one group and one way in another group. I've seen it in myself. Sometimes when we get a little zealous, we just like to apply it. In the same way. Posting your QTs on Instagram will not make you a better Christian. Writing about God and your love for God in every text that you write is beautiful. And I do that too. But it's beautiful only insofar as it is a reflection of what is going on in the secret place. Your PDA with Hananim. That ain't got nothing to do with you. Like, it, it ain't got nothing to do with your relationship with him. Don't, don't be in a relationship with God where... Don't be in a relationship with God where you might be more loving in front of people and be more withdrawn when people aren't there. Some of you guys might be extroverts and it might be easiest to read scripture and to engage with God's word when people are around. I say that's different. Um, a really good loving sister of mine, she likes to do QT in cafes because it's too distracting to do it on her own and that's that's okay that's within that's personality based i'm not condemning anybody who has a hard time in the secret place but what i am saying is that you cannot just do things because it's right and don't don't just don't just act in things because that's that's the christian way what what makes you holy is not any of that you might never post about jesus but if you are living an act of faith, it is God who is working in you as you work out your salvation. God is working in you. 
on the other end. Maybe some of you guys feel really stuck in your struggle. Maybe some of you feel really stuck in insecurity, bad habits, maybe a toxic relationship or like with family, with friends, with a significant other, with a spouse, with your kids. Maybe some of you might feel stuck in your relationship with God in complacency. Maybe it's been a really long time since you talked to him and you don't know how to get back. The first thing I want to tell you on how to apply that is that you're not alone. The interesting thing about feeling stuck is that it's very isolating. You might feel like everybody is moving on, but you. Everybody is moving forward, but you. You're not alone. When you feel stuck, you're not alone. We are all working out our salvation with fear and trembling. And in certain seasons, that might look like breakthrough. But God has to break us in first. And sometimes that means that we are stuck roaming around Mount Sinai for 40 years, even though it's an 11-day walk between Egypt and Canaan. And we're just stuck roaming in circles around this one mountain. And that's okay. You're not alone. That also means that the reality that God has won the victory and rescued you still stands, even when it's hard to believe. One really important thing that you need to learn to apply is verses 24 through 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is a difference between saying, Wretched person that I am. Who will deliver me? I suck. What is wrong with me? And being stuck there. You must acknowledge the fact that even when you cannot see it, even when you cannot feel it, you have a rescuer that has not given up on you, that has not forgotten you. We must learn as Christians to claim what we cannot see. We do not live a life based on sight. We live by faith. What it means practically to live by faith might be to claim the rescue, the victory, the breakthrough, and thank God for it even before it has come to pass. Somebody has got to hear that. You must remember to acknowledge God. As who you, who he is in that moment. If you're somebody that needs rescuing from your situation, then God is your rescuer. If you are somebody that needs comfort, then God is your comforter. If you are somebody that needs help, then he is your help. You must claim God and give thanks to him. Those two things. Claim God and give thanks to him even when you haven't seen that come to pass yet. Because we believe in the reality of Jesus Christ. The victory is practical. Don't tell me that it is an, a concept. The, the death and resurrection with Christ is a fixed point in time that existed in the physical realm and the spiritual realm. It is a very practical victory. 
You claim God. You give thanks to him. You live by faith and not by sight. Do you feel stuck? You're not alone. And claim God. And thank him. Thank him. Because God's victory. In order for you to claim him and thank him, you have got to. You know why it's important that you thank God? Because in order to get to a genuine heart of thankfulness, you have got to believe. Even when you feel desolate. Even when you feel like there's no way out. Jane, I cannot break this sin. I cannot break this addiction. I cannot break this idolatry. When you claim God and you are able to give thanks to him, that means you believe. That means you genuinely believe that even when you haven't seen that come to pass, you are acknowledging it is that does not mean that God is not with me. I believe. And I thank you. It enables you to live out life. Not by your season. But by your God. Not by your sight, but by your faith. God has got you. So walk with him. Don't give in to your flesh every single moment. Yes, there will be times when you fall. But Christ has already paid the path. He's already paid the price for the sin that you will commit next week. So walk with him. Engage in the life of the spirit that you are already in. We almost might miss it. We almost might miss it. But it says in verse 6, but now we are released from the, this is before Paul explains his condition. He says, now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, and not the old way of the written code. You engage in those spiritual disciplines. Praise him if you are a worshiper. Read his word, even if you don't want him. Acknowledge him. Claim your God. Even when you cannot see it. God has not given up on you. Don't be discouraged and give up. If you feel like you're about to, surround yourself with others because you are not alone. God gives us community to make it easier. Are you engaging in the spiritual practice of koinonia? Community is a spiritual practice. Are you engaging or are you choosing to do it alone? Because that is not within the will of God for you. Unfortunately, contrary to your pride, you cannot do it on your own. 
Because God is not alone. He is three. What do you think we are that we can do it on our own? Why are you discouraged? You have hope. You can hope in God. But you might be setting yourself up for hopelessness as well. Try to identify where you might be setting yourself up for hopelessness. Take ownership. Don't just let your sin happen to you. Don't just let your insecurities happen to you. We live by faith and not by sight. Don't just give in. And you know, if you fall, it's okay. When you fall, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of sin? Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jesus. There's a difference between godly guilt and self-condemnation. You know what that is? Self-condemnation. I suck. How can I do this? How can I be such a terrible person? Blah, 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 blah. That's it. But godly guilt is, man, I can't believe. I can't believe I gave in to my addiction again. I can't, you know, I can't, I can't believe I did it again. But God, I know that you are with me. But I know, I know, God, that you love me. And I know, God, that you have covered this very moment. God, I am in remorse, but I know you are kind. Forgive me of my sin. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for my moment right now. There's a difference between godly guilt and grief. In self-condemnation. Be careful. Be careful. What you tell yourself can be toxic to your spirit. What you choose to fall into, some of us, we like to marinate in that emotion because it's comfortable. Fear, darkness might be more comfortable. Be careful. Lastly, let God change you. Don't give up. It is not us that can change us, but only God. I've said this over and over again. As cliche as it is, yes, I mean, I was challenged in moments to live out faith to one more step. I was challenged and I followed through with living out faith in one more step. But you know what it really was that changed me? It was God and his word. Not his word that is relevant to my life right now. Just his word. Reading about Samuel. Reading about Ruth reading about Esther, reading about Peter, things that even might not feel that relevant to me, not just the epistles that just speak right into your heart, but maybe even Genesis. 
Jonah, Amos, Micah, Obadiah. That's God. And hey, if you're wrestling with things, if you're having trouble with your theology, and you're having trouble with hard questions, God's spirit, his word is true. We believe in a God that does not tell lies. We believe in a God that does not need you to be true. So you can throw your hardest questions at him. The Bible can take it. And don't do that one alone either. Because God can handle you. If he can love me in my worst, he can love me in my best, God can handle your worst. Let's take a moment to pray. Where are you? What season are you in right now? Do you feel stuck? (laughs) Do you feel stuck? Redemption of God's law is already over you. Do you relate to Paul? Maybe today is the day where you claim your God. Maybe today is the day you start to acknowledge him again. Maybe you've been avoiding him. Maybe you haven't been allowing him into your decisions. Maybe today is the day to face him. take this moment to be open to God, to engage with God truly, to be encouraged by the fact that even Paul experienced this and that Jesus Christ died for all of us. But not that he just died, but he resurrected. And that his victory, his victory is what hangs over you. And you are victorious in him. Whatever darkness you're encountering right now, You are victorious in him. Whatever sin you feel like you cannot overcome, whatever season you're in, you're stuck in your sin, you're stuck in your complacency, you're not hearing God, you are victorious in Christ. What are you choosing to believe? Let's take this moment to be open with God, to engage with God in prayer. From wherever you are listening, we hope you were blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at nbkumc.com.